0: Welcome back, uh, I'm Neil Brogan, this is Brogan's Run. Thanks so much for tuning in again, and uh, I hope you've been having a nice summer. Um, this episode is quite unbelievably with the American songwriter Will Oldham, better known as Bonnie Prince Billy. Um, I had the opportunity to speak to Will a couple of weeks ago remotely. With somebody like Will Oldham, uh, it would be foolish to try and cover the, you know, the breadth and depth of their career, in the space of an hour long podcast i wasn't going to try and do that so we just tried to have a conversation um, about some of the stuff that's happening with will at the minute and just really focusing on the last sort of uh the recent material that he's put out and what he's up to what he's interested in at the minute and it was just great uh getting to talk to him as you'll hear i think you know uh, it's quite an insightful interview and i really hope you enjoy it um so without further ado this is will oldham Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for doing this. It's amazing to talk to you. I really appreciate you doing this.
1: Thanks for
0: having me. I was watching your podcast you did with Officers. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I was watching that yesterday because I hadn't seen it.
1: There were two of them. Was it the one with Callahan or the one
0: with Sweeney? The one with Callahan. Right on. (laughs) That's great. Um, Where you've got like a balaclava on and he's like painting some kind of horse. Yeah. Usually when you do promo, it's kind of like slightly, it's quite funny and it's quite sardonic. Um, like, is your attitude to all that kind of thing, you know, you kind of hate promoting stuff? Is that, is that kind of true? If I'm
1: going to be engaging in something that's related to the music that I'm involved with, I like to think that I can do it well. And the last thing on anybody's mind, it seems, when it comes to the creation of How the promotional cycles are um, executed and the the processes involved with promoting a record. The last thing on anybody's mind is the content. Yeah, it's not a natural process, and and increasingly, you know, increasingly over the past, say, fifty years, it because musicians, artists are so interchangeable. it really doesn't matter to anybody who anybody is talking to or what they're talking about. And it's just, well, this would work better for us if the artist was able to do this in this way and in this format and get these pictures done. And we need to have it, you know, the material we need to have it at this, you know, many weeks or months in advance. And we need to have an exclude and all these things. Nothing is about like, how do we get a a good interview about what we want to talk about? That's not there. And so you're fighting such, and it's not a logical process, you know, to work for a year or two on a, something and then submit yourselves randomly to anywhere between five and 50 journalists asking usually relatively unthought out random questions that you've never, that's ne- that have never occurred to you in your entire life. Right. Um, so you have to come up with an answer without defeating the purpose. What you're trying to do is make people interested in the music and, and – but here you are, someone's asked you a question that you don't have an answer for, and yet you need, it's your job to provide content that will attract people to the music rather than repel them. And it's quite a, you know, it's a, it's a job unto itself. Yeah. So usually, yeah, usually I try to remember that these things are coming up. You know, I forget when I'm making a record completely because they're so hor- horrible, those experiences. <laughs> and And then, when I realize that they are coming up, yeah, I just try to think, well, how can I do it in such a way where it does intersect with things that I care about or things that I'm potentially good at or 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 ways of speaking that that won't do more harm than good to the record right yeah, so and and then that sometimes means including things that involve having a sense of humor, <laughs> yeah.
0: Definitely. When I approached you about this, you said like you weren't really into podcasts, but you were open to like trying this basically. So I've noticed like you did the the officers uh, thing and you did another podcast talking about books, I think. Oh, yeah. You seem to be quite open to just doing these kind of things that maybe you're not sure about just to see what happens kind of thing and like collaborating maybe with people um her like lower profile. There's there's been a bunch of collaborations recently with different people. Like most most recent one was that Andrew Reinhardt thing, which is oh, yeah. great. The video for that is amazing. It is amazing. It's um, <laughs> so good. Um how did that happen? How did that come about with him?
1: We you know we both are from Louisville, Kentucky and have certain definitely a number of crossovers in our in our shared history. And we've I guess kind of actively become closer and closer over, I'm going to say the past 10 years, we might've begun spending time together about 10 years ago. And we recorded the song then made the video. I think months after the song was even released perhaps. And then, and then it took him months and months and months because he did all, everything on the video or he did a lot of the things on the video and a lot of the editing. So it took him months and months to put it out. Yeah. Yeah. He was asking over the last week, he kept asking me if I would share it on Instagram. And Instagram is something that I don't actively engage with very much. I, so I said, you might have to walk me through how to do that. <laughs> and there was all this stuff. He's like, you got to use Dropbox. And I said, oh, I I don't use Dropbox. So we us <laughs> find another way. And he ultimately figure it out some way. And I was just like, just let me log on, put it on there and log off and right. did that. that
0: was, <laughs> yeah. That was something I was going to ask you about with social media. Cause you're quite active on Twitter. I yeah. less so on Instagram. Um, but it surprises me that you're even on Instagram at all. And I remember yeah. like a few years ago, you, like there was like a drag city takeover that you did and you just posted Pictures of like dead frogs or something, yeah. I still remember. Yeah. So like your attitude to social media. Most people I talk to you about this obviously have a big and you know ambivalence towards it because they need it. But in in your case, you probably don't really need it. So I just wonder why you engage. I mean, I could see maybe why because you like maybe like Twitter, but Instagram. What What's the thinking behind that? Like
1: yeah it was it was you know i had a number of friends who were involved with it and then i remember being on a tour where i was playing solo shows touring with bitch and Bajas. we were sharing the bill together and traveling with my friend oscar who sells merch for me also and everywhere we would stop or every time we paid a toll i would ask people you know do you have instagram and most people would say no and i thought that was really interesting because i it seemed like most of the people i knew had it but the people collecting tolls or working at the motels or restaurants. None of them at that time had Instagram. Right. And in experimenting with Facebook years before I had kind of a sour grapes relationship with it because I have, I still have friends who use that and they seem to really like it. Um, But it's different, you know, if your job involves promotion and notoriety because then it becomes this interface that's work related and, Uh, there's a different kind of audience for it than if you're just communicating with friends and family or people who share your interests. So with Instagram, I tried to, I created something at first that was, I think it, my little bio descriptor was music beer at Guinevere. Guinevere is my dog's name. Beer was something that I was interested in. It was something that kept my mind occupied when I was traveling Right, because at the time there was this kind of wonderful, insane creative boom going on in independent breweries, right? Um, And music—you know—I was going to see music all the time, but I would just take pictures of these things, put them on there, but my name wasn't anywhere on there. Right. So, so it was really, it was really great and really fun for five years or so, and then gradually, when people started to know who was behind the the account, I thought, you know, I would. Then I thought, well, it's becoming less fun. I guess I should turn it into more of a work tool. Did that for a little while, and and then finally, by about by the end of 2019, I thought, well, I'm going to make this one record. Uh, I made it. I made a place, yeah. use my social media, and then get rid of them because I it doesn't make me comfortable anymore. It seems very. It, to me, it felt. For me, it was a very negative experience. Right. Um, and then, and then we had uh, lockdown, and all of a sudden, Instagram became a completely different thing for a while uh, because it was kind of a wonderful, crucial lifeline, communication lifeline with with other people.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: So I was just begrudgingly got back on, and then and and then we devised this the the. Long form singles release, collaborative record with Callahan, and for which Instagram was kind of perfect, right. and so we used it extensively during that. And then after a year, year, you know, maybe a, a year, maybe a little more, then it seemed like the dust was settling, the smoke was clearing, and and the only thing Instagram did when I opened it up was give me PTSD, you know, thinking about <laughs> COVID and lockdown. Right, And so I just, and my phone died and I had got a, got a new phone. I just didn't put it on there for six months. And then I put it on recently and I, yeah, I'll go on every two or three weeks if Drag City or Andrew is just like, would you please post this thing? <laughs> but I don't look, and it also, it does look more, it looks different now. When I go on there, it yeah. seems like there's, there's a lot more pollution and clutter than there used to be, is my yeah. impression from really, really brief forays into it.
0: Well yeah, there seems to be a lot of people up in arms about how oh, they've mastered around with it and recently. It's all about like sort of trying to copy TikTok and I think it's about uh, trying to sell things the same way that Facebook is. You know, Facebook's like almost unusable now because you go on and you're just spammed the second you go on there. But um Twitter you seem to be more into that. Like you seem to be, you're quite active on there and it's not just about your stuff. You're not trying to really promote your stuff on there. It's more about uh, things that you're interested in and, and maybe uh, things that are local to you In and things that are happening around you.
1: Sweeney, Sweeney said, you're going to like Twitter, whatever, 10 years ago or something like that. And and, I st- and so finally I got him to show me how it worked and and then similarly I used it for five or six years without anybody you know without identifying myself right. and then gradually some awareness came around and and again would start to try to use it in relationship to telling people about music hmm. um, but but until that point I was using it it was a one it's a great newspaper replacement you know it's got Funny papers. It's got sports. It's got news. I can follow
0: mm-hmm.
1: journalists who I appreciate. I can find, and it's easy to get in and out of. I don't. I don't think of it as a interactive. Uh, you know, sometimes people will ask me a question in a feed, and I'm right. Why? Why would <laughs> I try, like shouting a you know, question across a crowded room? Right. Um, and I don't. I don't engage with dialogue in it. It just seems like that's not what it's about. It's about you know, just letting people dialogue should be happening in this way or more ideally actually in person with people, in person, yeah, not on a fucking
0: app. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I do agree, but um that's another thing that sort of leads me to asking you about if you feel like you're more maybe politically active than you were, because it seems like some of the things you retweet and that things that you're interested in, um that come up on twitter you know you didn't really maybe have that outlet years ago yeah you know now there's this other side to you that you can see publicly yeah um, is that something that's kind of grown in the last couple of years or the last few years or is it just more obvious now because of that I think,
1: yeah i think it's just more obvious because yeah you open up this web page and everything is there so uh, mm-hmm. and, and it feels like well and, it, and it's interesting because you know i'll i'll just because i have access to somebody else's feed that somebody you know many people might not think to follow and i think well there are people who are following my feed i might as well broadcast this right but i don't think the reaction to something that i'm interested in is nothing you know and then but if i will you know say something that's that is music related or work related then the audience explodes a little bit yeah um, so yes, it's totally. it's more just like, you know, if there's something that I feel like it's almost a crime to not re rebroadcast it, then yeah. I, I better do it. You know, it's just like if you see somebody bleeding on the street, you don't drive by, yeah. even if yeah. place to go.
0: I mean, that's interesting because I guess that's like the opposite of some some musicians' experience on Twitter. Is they when they talk about a gig coming up? Uh, mm-hmm. or they talk about their music. there's <laughs> like very little response. And then they'll say something funny and then that will get yeah. the response. And then you'll see them trying to be funny all the time, you know, because oh, yeah. that's, what's getting the reaction, you know?
1: Yeah, um, it is. It's, I mean, yeah, I, I, I see even among friends, some people their their sort of their character becomes increasingly defined by their followers and, and you, you can sometimes see relationships degraded by the amount of attention that people to their followers rather than to their actual true community.
0: What were you reading when you started writing songs?
1: You know, I I go back to... There's a book, one day maybe I'll reread it, but there was a book, there's a book, uh, a big novel written by John Barth, who was, uh, I guess could be considered, he was a part of, a, I think a primarily American literary postmodern movement. He's He's rightfully considered a postmodern writer, although this book is one part of its greatness is that it's the whole thing is an experiment. It's an experimental novel, but it's the experimentation is to write maybe a, like a Tom Jones style book, like a, a ribald adventure. Right. In an earlier time where okay. this guy is fully fluent in writing deconstructed novels. Instead he reconstructs and writes a beautiful classic novel that could have been basically written a hundred years before and does it exceptionally well. And for some reason, it was a book that I savored, and I would read a chapter or two and just need to think about it for a week or two. And then, so I carried it around for a while, six six months or something like that. And every chapter seemed to be telling me something about existence or my life. And I know that it was big. I know that it was really important. Um, I think around the same time, there was a book called The Tree of Life by a guy named Hugh Nissenson. It was written in journal form and was kind of telling a, uh, a part of the story of what's his name is Chapman, I believe, the guy uh, who's known more popularly as Johnny Appleseed. Right. And so it's sort of a limited time period biography in journal form of Chapman through the eyes of this other character. And that writer also the more, and I stuck with that writer through the end of his career when he died. And it seemed again, like what Barth was doing, trying to create something fresh and new and great using pre-existing. Tropes and forms and situations, which is probably something that I do, and have done a lot in music. And and similarly, I think I may have talked about this in the Alan Licht book, but along in, in, along the same lines as these other books was was uh, Nick Cave's book um, and the Ass Saw the Angel, right. which was really really great for me because my brain was just misfiring like crazy. And, and I was having temporarily some issues, like some just issues of understanding anything. right? Uh, and I couldn't read anything. And it was kind of terrible. I would pick up a book and I just couldn't get past the first paragraph. And Brian McMahon, who was in Slint mm-hmm. and uh, The Four Carnation, he was a big Nick Cave fan when we were in high school. I didn't understand it. It seemed like Nick Cave seemed like some weird kind of pretentious poser guy. Mm -hmm. And one day I asked Brian to make me a a mixed cassette of his or or to introduce me to Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. So he did. And that's, and I got deeply into it, especially that tape, but then deeply into the Bad Seeds records. And then I was losing my mind at some point. And when that book came out, in a, in a wonderful way, you know, Nick cave wrote the book in a way that was very related to the way he wrote lyrics and even would quote in that book, lyrics that were in songs. So my brain had this kind of lifeline to this music that was living in my head and it, and helped pull me to the page and kept me through. So like that book, saved me from this dry spell of not being able to read for six months or nine months or something like that. Uh, right. And it's a similar kind of book. It's a, it, to the other two books that I was just describing to this outweed factor and the tree of life, because it's, uh-huh. you know, he try he he's using all of these images and concepts that come from far away, geographically and temporally. Uh, and then rebuilding something extremely new but that fits alongside of these older things like you can d- draw a definite line yeah. um and yet it's extremely extremely fresh and extremely new and and relatively groundbreaking in in some ways
0: right i suppose that leads me to um the tip you were given of like scottish ballads yeah. There's a great story in that Alan Nick book where um, you talk about going on holiday to Scotland in the early '80s, and you were the family next door. You became friendly with them, and one of the 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 sons became kind of like you had a correspondence with him, and he uh, made you this mixtape, I guess, of all these Scottish ballads. Five mixtapes, tape. right? Yeah. And that's Five like tapes. that's just gold, you know? Because yeah, gold, that's just like very so formative in in you know your songwriting and without that it's hard to imagine what your songwriting would be like maybe and yeah yeah you know thinking about how kids can access music now you know in seconds that just to get that in your lap like that is is amazing you know yeah and it,
1: it's amazing you know. I feel like one of the many shortcomings of the way people access music now is is there's an, an unintended implication to listeners now that there is no context or story behind any of the music that we're hearing, that it's just there. It's just, you open your laptop and the music is there and that's where it's from. It's all the same. Everything, it lives alongside everything the same. And here, you know, one of the many great things about, and I'm totally not, talking about the good old days or anything like that i'm just trying to identify different practices when it comes to discovering music and listening to music right um because some people now maybe don't fully understand but the idea of a you know this guy made 95 90 minute mixtapes and making mixtape it was a laborious effort and sourcing the music to begin with was a laborious effort because some of it he recorded off the radio some yeah. of it is from records. Some of it is from cassettes. Maybe some of it was from compact discs. I'm not sure. I'd have to ask him. He might not remember. And you can feel even the you know the difference in level changes, the difference in EQ, mm-hmm. the, the different gaps, and the way he structured it. Um, and knowing, and then he wrote also seven or eight pages of notes on every track. You know, one you know, seven or eight pages total, including notes on every track, like. It might be about introducing me to who the singer is or who the songwriter is or what kind of instruments are being played or where he sourced the material or what year it's from, just dependent on the song, whatever bits of information appealed to him. You know, that's a, that's a way of listening, listening where you understand that a song is, you know, is a, is a gateway and your existence is on one side of it. And then there's another existence on the other side of it. And this song is this intense portal that can allow you to explore so much different older practices of, of listening to music. You, that awareness was more available than it is right now.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I just think it's so unique what that guy did. And like, I guess you must've been in your, Mid teens or something, or early teens. When he
1: made the tapes, it was it, I was about eighteen, I think. Yeah,
0: you know, not many people would do that. You know, go to all that effort, and it, it just seems like this amazingly fortuitous thing that this thing uh, came to you and led you. It sort of it, it feeds so much into your music, um, yeah. especially Scottish, you know, music. Yeah, um, but I suppose that we can talk a little bit about you know, the other side of things, which is how things are now. with things like Spotify and stuff, I noticed a couple of years ago that there was kind of, you know, Drag City announced they were going to put all your records on. And like since then, most of them have come back off again. So there's like Super Wolves and there's a few other kind of collaborative things and and kind of covers things and live things. But most of your catalog has gone. And I just wondered, like, if you want to talk about, why you decided to do that?
1: Yeah, maybe you could answer why 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 would anyone have their music on Spotify?
0: <laughs> well, I mean it's a perfectly reasonable question and I think I mean, I don't know, I don't have the answer. The reason like I'm a musician, I have my music on Spotify but I question it constantly and I know that my main audience would actually be on Bandcamp, but I feel like the Spotify is the advert for Bandcamp. But, you know, I think if you're somebody of your, your kind of profile, um, it's more of a big deal. And it, it does mean that pe- people have to make a decision about how they consume your music and stuff, you know. Um, but I suppose it maybe locks out the more passive younger people who might be coming to your music fresh and uh, aren't used to that model of like paying for things, you know. Uh-huh
1: yeah they may not be used to the model, but i you know I also something I think that it's strange about the internet or Spotify, and I hinted at this a little bit in just terms of how did the juxtaposition of one kind of music ne- right next to another is not everything is for everybody so if right. you know if people really appreciate the Spotify model to some extent shouldn't there be variations in the content of what they are experiencing um I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think Spotify implies in general a shallower experience um, because you're yielding the joy and the responsibility of, say, choosing the music that you listen to to the algorithm very often with Spotify listeners. Yeah. Um, you're also choosing so much, just, you know, you're inviting the voice of the corporation to become a part of your life, an intimate part of your life, yeah. um, which is implies, yeah, kind of a passivity and irresponsibility. There's also, you know, increasingly as people are aware that Spotify is problematic and then, and they say, well, yeah, I'm, you know, I, I love, I love the app. That's and, maybe not a listener that I'm really that intrigued about creating a relationship with. Right. If they are interested in pursuing a relationship that essentially fucks my ability to make music then that's Mm -hmm. not somebody I want to have a relationship with.
0: Right. I get it. Totally.
1: Like I listen to your music in such a way that it makes you suffer and less likely to be able to continue to make music. Therefore, I don't care for you. I don't respect you. And I'm going to continue to denigrate your life's work by listening to this service. Right. Okay. Well, you know, go fuck yourself.
0: Right. (laughs) That's pretty much, you know, all we need to say about that, I think, Yeah, you know, um, but I suppose that leads me on then to asking you about these kind of more low profile releases you've made in the last few years on and off. Yeah. You've done your own mixtapes of they're kind of like, almost like you're uh, like a bootleg series. I suppose it was the think in mind. This was just to sell them at gigs initially. Was that the plan for those? Uh, the plan was, I have a friend
1: um, who's also a fan who lives a few streets over named Dennis Lesser. And he would sometimes make me amazing mixtapes in, in a, in a kind of an old school way. Like he would make mixed, mixed cassettes and give them to me of of various kinds of music, including sometimes of my own music and music that I've been involved with in -hmm. really interesting and compelling ways. And then at some point, uh, one of my wife's best friends, um, a guy named Justin Clark, who uh, was a skilled archivist was going to come to town for a while. And and I asked him if he would want to live in our workspace and archive all these, you know, closets of CDRs and cassette tapes and VHS tapes and two inch, you know, and, and hard drives. Right. So he did. And then I knew where, and he kept asking me questions. He lived there for a few months and he kept asking me, you know, What's this song? What's this song? And and I realized like oh, when he's done, we could give all of these archives then to Dennis, and Dennis could make mixtapes. And Dennis was into the idea. And the idea, you know, and the thought was well, you know, part of the joy of a mixtape is the direct personal relationship between the maker of the tape and the receiver of the tape. Right. So in a way, you know, so we it, it was already one significant step removed that because dennis made multiple copies but he only made 20 copies of each cassette
0: all right and okay. he
1: he worked with different visual artists to, cre- to create the artwork for each cassette but there were 20 and the idea was you know get rid of them however we could get rid of them give them away as gifts sell them and, but there were only 20 of each and there were you know maybe can't remember how many volume i just found he had delivered another volume right before lockdown. And I just found the bag of them. I'd never done anything with them. So I might take right. them on the road in a couple of days and, and get rid of them. Um, and then just thought, well, what are the, you know, what are, what are related activities and, and thought, well, if we, or how do we let people know that this is happening in such a way and give people an inkling of what the experience is like and thought, well, I'll put them on Bandcamp, But do the you know as full side so it's not like you can't pick and choose. You're experiencing the mixtape, you know. In uh-huh. addition to the music, you're experiencing the mixtape, and and uh-huh. and the work that that Dennis put in to right to make a great listening experience.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, it's interesting that it was you know this very quite low profile under radar kind of way of releasing it. Yeah, um, I got this one. Oh yeah, picked up. You played in my hometown, I think in 2015. You were doing this like solo tour. Yeah. And you just played in this church in my hometown, which is a place called Bangor in Northern yeah. Ireland. And uh I got that at that show. Um, but I kind of wondered, and I still wondered like why. Well, for... there were so many questions about that. That whole show and everything. It was like having read that Alan like book where you talk about not liking performing on your own and all this stuff, <laughs> I was like, well, why? why is he doing this this solo gig I mean it was great I have to say I, I would just add that it was a great show like I loved that show um but I wondered why he chose to do that and why you know the the songs on this are basically you playing solo um and then you put it out yourself self released thing I wondered like what was the reason for that was it something that you didn't want to go down the whole kind of Giving it Drag City and having a big release for it, or what was the what was the thinking there?
1: Yeah, on some levels. Also, um, my father died suddenly and unexpectedly in two thousand six, and right around that time, my mother was beginning to show possible signs of encroaching dementia. And indeed, it turns out that that's what that's what it was. And as her situation got more tenuous. It required a lot more time, energy and attention on my part and took up a great deal of my everything, uh, Mm -hmm. emotional landscape as well for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, So by the, by that time uh, I had become relatively, isolated because I couldn't, um, tour or go away for long periods of time because my mother's care required so much attention. Um, and, and because my mother was relatively young when she began to experience this decline, she was 63 when it began. And, um, you know, by 2014, 2015, she was getting close to 70, uh, So I just thought I needed – I wanted to both – my ability to communicate with people was very hampered and handicapped at that point. Uh, So I think I wanted to make something both that would allow me to as fully as possible occupy all leftover time and emotion uh, and energy I had in the making of a record Um, and just to increase – direct contact with as much as I could related to my musical life. Um, right. So, yeah, so I made the record, you know, made the record just by myself. You know, I typed all the lyrics and I took the pictures and I, I found a gr- layout person. Conveniently, I just looked on Google Maps for a graphic designer. And there was somebody in the apartment building across the street from my house. So I called right. her I was like, can you work with me on this? And so she helped me lay out the cassette and the CD and the vinyl and the CD, you know, I had to pack the sleeves and pack the lyric sheets in and then put that in plastic. And then, you know, and then I contacted all the record stores as well. And, and to make it, I didn't contact any distributors. I just contacted record stores because I was just like, I'm going to go all the way with this and have it be like, I, this is as direct as possible. I'm right. going to pack all of these boxes myself and sell them to record stores. Um and it was just a way of kind of staying sane and staying involved with uh the music as much as possible and and trying to you know share something of what I was experiencing but in a translating it into recorded form kind of. Right. And right. into and, and into physical form as well. So that you have that and you have this thing that comes from this isolated period that that someone was experiencing, and right, and it's a nice, it's nice that you have that. You know, I I'm, I'm very glad that you have that. You know, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, that's I think that's the most recent time I saw you play, um, and that was really special. Just because, partly because it was in my hometown, um, but also just because you played so many of my favorite songs and uh, yeah. of yours, and it was. It was just felt really, you know, magical, that show, you know, so it was great. Um, but that's really interesting what you're saying there, because you kind of it's weird to think of you as an established artist, kind of having to go underground again and be like a DIY artist, mm-hmm. you know, but sort of forced to because of your circumstances at the time. Yeah. Um, and I always wondered about, you know, what was happening there. But I, that explains it, obviously. and. And through that through that last decade, sort of the you know, the twenty tens, you didn't put out apart from that Bonnie Prince Billy album, it was mostly like covers records and things you were doing. Yeah. Until you did I Made a Place. And you even did a cover record of Wolf Goes to the Town. You did a cover of that. Yeah. Like so you re recorded that whole album. <laughs> I just yeah. wondered why why you
1: did that. Well, a lot of it was then, you know and another part of, of making the, that yellow self title record was trying to explore many of the things that helped give my experience with making music substance and made it, you know, why am I even involved with this? And because, especially as the landscape has changed, it becomes less recognizable. Um, you know, I don't, like I've said before, if, if I were born 15 years ago, I were 15 years old now and experiencing streaming music, there's no way I would be interested in making music. Like it's right. not, it's just not anything. It doesn't interest me at all. Like it's just, you know, it's nothing. It's, and so seeing everybody sort of give over their musical lives to these strange malevolent corporations, um, you know, made me want to explore because I, this is what I do. I'm going to yeah. do this, you know, I'm going to do it the rest of my life. It's what I do. Um, I can't help it. I'm, com- you know, I, I, yeah. And so then there was a number, yeah. A number of years where rather than add new songs to this disgusting pool that the internet is, you know, touting is like, we have every song. It was just like, oh, fuck you. You don't, <laughs> uh, but, um, But then, you know, but just thinking like, well, I still need to make music. I need to learn more about music. So I'm going to get into these other songs. And and at the same time, you know, if I get into them and get into them with passion and if I get into them with creativity and with energy, um, I will also potentially be doing my part to keep myself in spiritual and musical shape while also ideally helping people in audiences that pay any attention to the records that I'm making to give them a little bit of some guiding lights on how how do you navigate these things. Like right. so if I make the best Troubadour, the Merle record, Merle Haggard record. Yeah. It if people are like rather than surrendering to the algorithm, they can say, Well, I'd like to learn listen to more Merle Haggard music, you know? Right. And, or I'd like to listen to more mecons or I'd like to listen to more Susanna, or I'd like to listen mm-hmm. to Wolf War Goes to Town again or whatever, you know, those those yeah. ideas. Yeah.
0: Yeah like trying to prepare for this I've been watching some of your like recent media appearances and one of them was uh you and your wife on a kind of s- sort of TV show like morning performing. news yeah yeah morning news and it's great you're doing a Merle Haggard song and it's really cool and the guy that like the anchor guy is like really into it, it seemed like genuinely to be really happy He's a pro. That you were there he's yeah. A yeah yeah well he's a pro but yeah I was impressed But I suppose that leads me then to sort of talking about your more sort of the latter half of that decade then when you uh, met your wife and um, had a child, started a family. Um, And that, I guess, that's a big kind of watershed in anybody's life. You know, it changes a lot of things. You know, how, how did that affect how you approached songwriting in terms of practicality of it like having a child in the house all of a sudden yeah um, finding the time to write songs and then just modifying your brain to you know to to write different kinds of songs maybe because i i think i made a place seems to me like it's a warmer album than some of your previous albums and it's got a lot of there's a lot of heart to it and it seems more direct maybe more personal Uh um Again, like you talk like in that book about always having Bonnie Prince Billy, like that persona at a remove from the material. Um, but it seems like that record's quite direct and it seems to be about your life. Uh-huh. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean I think of songs like uh Nothing Is Busted or the the title song I've made a place. Yeah. Those are full or uh look backwards on your future, those are full kind of nar- you know, narratives, fiction fictional narratives. Right. Um, I think you know some a song like "Squid Eye" is more personal, but it's abstract. You know, it's more, it's it's fully abstract.
0: I was going to ask you about that song because it's quite like even for you, like it's quite an obtuse kind of lyric. <laughs> I was I was wondering what that song's about, um, and I wondered if it was sort of for your for your daughter that song. If it's like. You know, if it references stuff that she's into or something, you know. Well,
1: she was actually conceived probably about three months after the song was written.
0: Oh, okay. So no.
1: Yeah. So no. Oh, yeah. It was. Um, I have a there. There's another a writer who, whose work I I learned about around 1999. He was a mainland American who moved to the state of Hawaii at a certain point and became and was a writer and wrote a number of books set in Hawaii, short stories and novels, um, and was a writing teacher at the University of Hawaii. And I became very drawn in by his work. And he has a short story collection called Squid Eye. And the, and the, so the term is just meant to say, if you're spearfishing and you spearfishing for octopus, which is mm-hmm. colloquially called squid among even though they're not squid obviously among certain folks in in hawaii like octopi are are great at camouflaging themselves and being hidden but you can you know train yourself so that you can look at a terrain and say ah I think that I think there's an octopus right there or there's an octopus den or nest right there. All right. So that they, he called it squid iris, you know, so I, and then, you know, I've lived with that term for a long time and I just like that as this thing where, you know, this way of looking at things, you know, you, you can find what you're looking for. It's right there, but you need to train your eye in order to, to, to look at it. That's we We have a friend who's also kind of a, who leads ayahuasca ceremonies? And he, I, I played that song for him at one point after a ceremony, and he uh, was quite taken by it. But also because he was uh, working with people who were related to Aquaman as a commercial force, uh, and Aquaman is a lyric in there. And, and he was like, yeah, "Yeah, this is so nice." Yeah, but that's, but that, I mean, that's one of my favorite songs that I've ever, you know been able to put together
0: all right it's really fun that song I, I was gonna ask you as well in that lecture or whatever that sort of tutorial songwriting tutorial you gave to yeah. Louisville um, musicians the music, yeah you're talking about nonsense coming up with nonsense songs is a way to kind of jump start, uh creativity yeah and I feel like that kind of thing maybe that's something that lends itself to maybe coming up with like kids songs. I wondered if you ever thought of making like an album of children's music.
1: <laughs> I keep waiting for the day when I wake up and that seems like something I can do. All yeah. right. Uh, but that day has not happened yet. I, it seems like a very natural, logical thing for me to do. And I don't know why. Yeah. It still seems imp- Possible. I don't know yet yet how to make make a. At the same time, it's like I like that the records have an undefined audience, you know. Right. And so, once you make a kids' record, it's a kids' record.
0: Yeah, totally. It's it's very you've limited things a lot, but I just I mean, as a sort of an exercise, I I think it might be interesting to hear what you could do. I mean, you did make one. You wrote a song for a Disney movie. Or was, yes. it, was that Tealer made for that for that movie?
1: Oh, that's uh, the song for the. Di- I made one. I made a a song for an animated version of White Fang that was a Belgian production. That I where I wrote it and everything. The Disney one was presented to me as as a demo, and I think I might have changed a chord and a couple of lyrics, but it was pretty oh, much right. from the. Uh, there was like an acoustic demo that that the creators of that Pete's Dragon movie had. had oh, okay, had, and so I just was involved with bringing it to a new kind of life.
0: I saw you on Twitter recently kind of complaining about trying to get paid for that. Oh my gosh.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It was, it was kind of like applying for college to apply, to get paid the money that they owe me. And eventually (laughs) after days of, of digging in through their interface, you know, I was informed that I had properly registered, but I don't think I've been paid yet. And I don't Mm -hmm. imagine that I probably ever will unless I happen to meet somebody who's well-versed with how to squeeze money out of Disney.
0: Wow. Well, maybe like in like 18 months or something, you'll just suddenly get some money. It's possible. (laughs) It's possible.
1: No, I mean, I, I, the same folks who invited me to participate in that invited me to participate in a subsequent Disney production. And at first I was excited because I love these people. And then I started having to get on the phone with lawyers and then I had to do a a Zoom call with Disney execs and I was right. like, Oh yeah. <laughs> uh never mind. I mean I can't do this.
0: Do you kind of consume a bit of Disney like stuff like I was gonna ask you if you uh are into like Lynn Manuel Miranda's music just from having watched that stuff with your kid? He,
1: absolutely, yeah. I mean Moana and Encanto, yeah, are they're they're very rewarding music. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, mean,
0: especially Encanto, I think is is stunning. Like the music in that is so good. It's
1: know? it's great.
0: Yeah, and I like
1: you know I've watched some YouTube videos that go deep into you know explaining the Encanto music. Right. And I don't I I don't watch YouTube videos, but I you know Encanto. <laughs> was something that I would go to bed with running through my head and wake up in the middle of the night with it running through my head and wake up in the morning with it running through my head. So I just needed right. some help and yeah. <laughs> it should, it should help me find the value in this, you know, incessant oh, to- soundtrack.
0: Totally. It does. It gets stuck. I mean, I have to, I should explain. I, I also have a young child, so this is why. How I'm old? Five. Yeah. So five year old. So that's kind of peak age for that kind of stuff, I yeah. guess. And, but it is so good, like I have to say, it's, it, but it does warm its way into your brain. Yeah, um,
1: Mo- Moana is a movie I can watch more than Encanto. Encanto is a little chaotic right. and dense and hectic. Right. And Moana has, you know, these wonderful long scenes where it's Moana and Maui by themselves in the middle of the ocean, you know, which is yeah. unique in, in all of Disney for having such quiet and, you know, just a, one relationship, a friendship that that it focuses on. But yeah. the Encanto music, I love. And did you see the Oscars, the, the songs on the Oscars? Like the no, guy, I didn't. No. He's shaking. He's so nervous. He's shaking uh. the microphone, and it's beautiful. And then also they do a We Don't Talk About Bruno that's yeah. That's really
0: awesome. Massive, that song is, like, number one in the U.K. charts. So. Oh, really amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Um. I guess I know you're kind of pressed for time here. I was just going to ask you because I mentioned this when we were emailing about the time you were in Hawaii and you got a text saying that there was a nuclear missile heading for you. Um, yeah, I just was going to ask you briefly about that.
1: I think those of us who were, you know, everybody who was in the state of Hawaii pretty much at that time and had a, a text capable capable phone received that text, right? Um, and I think we were then subsequently at a much greater advantage than many people in the rest of the world, because that was the beginning of uh, our previous presidential administration. Right. And, you know, it was in my mind that there was a great likelihood that horrific things were about to happen to us all, but I didn't know what they were. And I got this text. And so it just seemed like the most natural thing in the world to, to my wife and I, and we, we were given the opportunity at that moment to check ourselves, you know, check our relationships with ourselves and each other and our God and our souls and and, and you know and face what would you know potentially be the worst possible um, scenario facing us. And yeah. then 45 minutes later we received a subsequent text saying that it was a false alarm, <laughs> even though the first one said, this is not a false alarm, this is not a drill. Take necessary right. cover or necessary precautions, like yeah. What a, yeah. But so we've we've got to live through, you know, forty five minutes of of experiencing the worst possible scenario. So everything else that happened after that, we had a little bit of hardcore training for. Where the rest of you didn't have that <laughs> hardcore training, so you're still like spinning when things like COVID happen or things that were happening all the time, and we're just like, yeah, yeah, been through it. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I guess it's just the context of how things are right now I, with that kind of the the kind of shadow of uh, nuclear conflict being raised again. Yeah, um, yeah. You're one of the few people in the world who actually knows what that feels like to be in that situation and, and feel something imminent. You know, There was a little PTSD
1: then also when uh, because when uh, Putin invaded Ukraine was the morning that we were leaving for a... Superwolves tour and i just you know so i just the whole time we were gone i was just thinking you know i if there's going to be a nuclear holocaust i hope it waits until we get back from tour and i'm with my (laughs) wife and daughter yeah and i don't know it didn't seem like other people were thinking along those lines but i I, you know i was just like when are the bombs gonna when is it gonna start when's it gonna start when's it gonna start
0: yeah um i guess just a quick final question is about touring post-covid are you with it? Are you? Is it? Was it weird when you started playing again? Are you quite comfortable now playing in front of people and being with audiences?
1: Yeah, it's there's so there are in you know, unpredictable and kind of really difficult to explain the uh, the differences in the energies um, at live shows. You know, we got it right away. The first show was we just didn't you know you didn't know what to, didn't didn't even think to expect. Difference, and then there was so much difference, and a lot of it right. was greater. You know, a lot of it was it was a nicer, it was an, it was wonderful because people were so in need. Because mm-hmm. that would have been June of last year, um, June of twenty one. Yeah. We started playing shows, and uh, I was playing solo for a while be- for reasons that I, I explained to you uh, seven mm-hmm. years ago. And then now I'm going to play solo again for six months, but primarily because if I'm traveling with five other musicians we're that much more vulnerable to potentially have to cancel a show. Whereas right. with an individual, I'm only one target for, for a virus to hit. And so for the next six right. months, so I'm nervous. You know, I, I was so grateful hearing you talk about the show that you witnessed and thinking, cause I'm so, you know, thinking like, well, how do I do this by myself? Uh, can I do it? Can I pull it off? And you gave me a little bit of, 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 Courage and encouragement. So thank you for that
0: very much. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. Um, no, I'm sure it'll be great. I'm sure it'll be amazing because people will so. just be delighted to see you and hear, hear your songs, you know. So it'll be great. And uh, thank you. Um, thanks for taking the time to sit and talk to me for an hour, and I really appreciate that. And thanks for just all the great music, you know. And hopefully uh, one of these days, if you get back to Belfast or something, I'll, I'll see you. Uh, Play a show or something
1: Yeah, I hope to just With my family probably do Another all Ireland Trip because yeah, uh, I mean for a variety of reasons But one of them is because I've been I have these, also I'm going to be playing New songs which is Kind of a new experience for me and They are You know, to be, to describe them Superficially they are Lyric heavy Songs, so um i have found that there's nowhere that i've experienced on the planet that is a more lyric attentive audience than in ireland so i'm just like i can play these songs other places but until i've played them in ireland i don't feel like i will have played them you know (laughs) like americans are they love they love the experience and they love music and that's great but It's not like sitting there and having people actually pay attention to the lyrics, which I would say is not necessarily a strong point of American audiences.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, that would be great. I'll look forward to that. Um, Thanks so much, Will. Thank you, Neil. So there you go. That was Will Oldham, um, also known as Bonnie Prince Billy. Uh, it was so great to get to speak to Will. Honestly, a, a real dream come true for me personally. Um, I followed Will's music uh, since I was uh, a young person, and he, you know, his music and his songs have been a huge inspiration and a big part of my life for a very long time. So it really was amazing to get to talk to him. And I didn't expect that to happen, um, but there you go. Um, it was it was so cool and so nice to talk to him. And uh, Will has loads of stuff going on. He's touring at the moment. Uh, he's going to be touring, as he said there, uh, over the next few months. He's touring in the states in September. Um, he's got various releases at the moment. Um, there's too many to list right here, but I will drop them all into the show notes for today's show, and uh, you can check them out at your leisure. Um, but yeah that's all from me for now so thanks for listening, take care bye
1: bye